0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com
1: slash four keys and download your free copy. You know, I think at the very beginning of the process of figuring out what you want, you have to say, do I want the whole trade-off that other people have made? Do I really want all of the downsides that go with, those particular upsides. I think that's such a liberating place to begin. You really immediately push past that totally false and unhelpful thinking and instead say, Look, what is it I was built to do, born to do? What did I come here to do? What's the right set of work uh, that I maybe even uniquely can bring to the world? You know, to me, that's the essential path. That's what it means, ultimately, to be an
2: essentialist. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at UnmistakableCreative.com. It is my pleasure to have you here. So I have been, as I was saying before we officially hit record here, a huge fan of your book, Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. It's one of those books that I return to over and over again. Um, I think it's in the same vein as Cal Newport's book, Deep, Deep, Deep Work, but I think it really sets us up to focus on the most important things in our lives. But before we get into your work around essentialism, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for work and how did that end up shaping and influence the choices you made throughout your life and career? Uh,
1: my father was uh, an entrepreneur. He ran his own uh, small uh, carpet and upholstery business. That was for the majority of the time I was growing up. And before that was, uh, w- was in sales. Uh, my mother was a full-time uh, stay-at-home uh, mom and then later did respite care. I think that one way that shaped uh, what i 've chosen to do is that uh, very early on, I wanted to be entrepreneurial myself. Uh, my first business was at ten years old, uh, washing cars and was actually quite a profitable business, certainly getting better uh, better money than anything else I could have done at the time in Leeds, England, uh, where I was raised and uh, and and I think it it began um a, a lifelong interest in the idea that uh that effort and reward are not linearly related. Mm-hmm. That you could uh you know I could have done at the time a milk round get up at four in the morning. I think they paid one or two pounds per hour. Uh and and so and you do that for hours every you know three times a week. I mean that's that's a job and that was very hard to get that job and I could earn, you know, Five or six times that in my own business on my own hours, uh, and, and the satisfaction of doing it how you wanted to do it. You know, that, that that was, uh, you know, a an important uh, contrasting moment. And and again and again in my life, I have tried, no matter how complex of a situation I was faced with, whether I'm consulting at Apple or uh, or, or indeed uh, writing essentialism, uh, whatever I'm trying to build. I tend to go back to that first entrepreneurial experience uh, to just remove all of the unnecessary complexity. Who is your customer? What are you doing for them? What's the major competitor they could go to? Uh, These simple questions cut through the clutter, uh, and and I think have helped me to be able to be uh, useful to um, to companies that I have worked with, and also individuals uh, that I've Mm -hmm. tried to apply those. And those lessons too.
2: So I, I want to come back to this idea of effort and reward. W- one thing I wonder is, you know, did your parents, uh, as you were growing up, encourage and nurture this entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial instinct. And also culturally in the UK, uh, what did you notice as differences in sort of the narrative around choosing entrepreneurial careers uh, versus America? Because I know, you know, as I've talked about on this show before, Indian parents are like, like hell, you're going to become an entrepreneur, go become a doctor, lawyer, engineer. And I know you were actually headed to law school at one point.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, England, there's no equivalent in England of the lemonade stand um, that, that's so, you know, prevalent, uh, within the U S and that's more than just symbolism. I mean, that when you have an experience, when you're young, my children have done it more than once, but not so very long ago, uh, you know, came together, they did a whole thing. It took them the whole day. They made it, you know, they did it beautifully. Uh, they, they went out, they earned the money. I mean, you have an actual experience, And the community supports it because you value this and you recognize it. The contrast for me is that in in the UK, I I never found people uh, adamantly against being an entrepreneur or taking a path less travelled. But I found people would say, "Well, why would you do that? Why why, why would you want to do that?" So Mm -hmm. it's it's deeper baked assumptions uh, against. Doing things differently, and of course that's worked fairly well for uh, for the United Kingdom. You know, it's almost a thousand years of uninterrupted uh, freedom. Uh, So, so stability has a high has a high value. Um, But nevertheless, for me, uh, in ways I didn't know when I was younger, it was really important to. Oh, um, I didn't have words for it when I was younger. It was really important to be able to have the freedom to challenge how it was done, uh, to look at how it might be done differently, better in the future. Uh, I we, we we went to Disneyland, uh, you know, one of the times we went to Disneyland with our children, we took one of these uh, tests uh, where you find out which Disney character you are, and I'm I can't remember his name now, but he's the uh, he's the inventor. In in uh, a bug's life, uh, who actually gets all sorts of things wrong in his inventions until he he like figures out how to really do it well, uh, and that surprised me at first. It wasn't probably the person I most wanted to be, but I loved it in hindsight because it's it's the story of this person who just doesn't see the world the same as other people, uh, and so yes, I was I was uh, you know I followed the traditional education system, despite this other deeper desire to do things differently in ways I perceived as better or more efficient, uh, game-changing ways. And so it it turned out I was at law school uh, studying and uh, I remember, but whenever we talked about educational plans with my father, what he'd really said to me was, was, you know, go to law school because that will keep your options open. Um, so it was a, it was a traditional um, path that was being recommended. And, and I was there and I got in and that itself is its own achievement. So, of course, once you're there, you don't necessarily think your first instinct isn't, okay, well, let's, let's not do this now. Um, and I, it wasn't that I absolutely hated the experience, but I didn't feel this sense of mission. With it, I didn't feel this sense of alignment, a sense of yes, I want to be doing this every moment. So, well, I, I had some friends in the United States, and I, I, I came out to visit with them. And in in being here, I started to feel this sense of my goodness, you could you could live here, you could have a completely different kind of ex- you know life, and and that was in the back of my mind when I met with somebody. Uh, established, you know, potential mentor sort of figure. And they said, look, Greg, if you do decide to stay in America, then you should come and help me do A, B, and C. And although I had the surface level imagined, oh, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if you could be here? It wasn't until he said that, assuming it really could be done, really emotionally uh, affirming that you can live a different kind of life. Uh, You can choose not to go down the path that you were on before. That I left his office and I literally took a piece of paper from somebody's desk and I brainstormed, what would you do if you could do anything? And at the end of that 20-minute brainstorm, I notice (laughs) critically, not what I've written down, but what I haven't written down. Law school is not on the list. (laughs) So... You know, that's that's the key moment because you say, well, right, I'm doing this. Now, from that moment, to continue to do it means you're doing something you know you wouldn't do if you could do anything. You know that there is a, a, a misalignment. Uh, and, and, of course, there's an argument to be made for we'll go back, finish it, and then decide what to do, and I'm not knocking other people that choose that. But for me, there, it was too incongruent to do that. And so mm-hmm. there was no. From that moment on, there was no putting uh, my
2: life back into its original packaging. Yeah, it wasn't so, going to fit anymore. That raises two questions for me. You know, this is something that I've asked multiple people, and uh, there's, I think, you know, this notion, that, and this is a very American thing. There's a book uh, that really caught my attention recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't remember the author's name, but it was titled, you know, how the relentless, uh, promotion of positive thinking is undermining America and podcasts like mine, books like yours, podcasts like Tim Ferriss, things like the four hour work we have encouraged us to buy into this narrative that anything is possible for anybody. And I had a mentor who challenged that. And he said, that's simply not true. He said that, you know, what we're doing is we're confusing probability and possibility. Like the probability that I'm going to play in the NBA with LeBron is literally zero. <laughs> so. um you know, as, as somebody who writes books in this genre, I, I wonder, you know, and somebody who has, you know, one, taught at an elite school and also been at an elite school, what do you say to that? Because not everybody's going to graduate from Stanford. I, I mean, I often think that, wow, what about the role that luck played in my getting to write a book with Penguin? Like, we don't acknowledge that because it sounds obnoxious to say it. Well, I certainly don't
1: think anyone can do everything. So that's like a pretty first important Principle in in counter in creating a counterweight to the I think false narrative that uh, that well if you put your mind to it you anything because anything is doable anything is achievable you know I think that you can achieve extraordinary things but certainly not everything and w- one of the first things one needs to do is to is to recognize that so that you can take that burden off. And instead of trying to do everything for everyone that you've ever imagined or anyone else has achieved, yeah, that, that's, that's all just burden. Instead, you say, what, what is my essential and unique mission in life? Oh. Uh, what, what, what is it that I came here to do? Let's take off all of that unnecessary yoke. I, I remember one of my, uh, one of my sisters in law when she was younger, before she was married. Had this idea. I remember distinctly talking to her about it. I think probably she talked about it more than once with me. She was searching for her future husband, and she wanted her husband to just be as athletic as this brother. Uh, that wasn't me. Uh, as as funny <laughs> as funny as this brother. That was also not me. As uh, as I think she was like as intellectual as you are, which I wasn't even such a compliment. Um, as. You know, and and on it went that's all she wanted she just wanted <laughs> the best of everyone that she was close to that's what she was looking for and and i yeah. think that's exactly what we do when we get into this comparison process this fear of missing out this uh this jealousy uh that that is inevitable when uh, when this you know when this Thinking takes place. We just want to be as as talented on the, on the uh, you know, in basketball as LeBron, like you just said, as as famous as Kanye, as rich as you know Bill Gates. As, I mean, it, like we, you know, I think at the very beginning of the process of figuring out what you want, you have to say, what's, do I want?" The whole trade off that other people have made. Do I really want all of the downsides that go with those particular upsides? And and that's a very like I think that's such a liberating place to begin. Uh, yeah. So so that you you really immediately push past that totally false and unhelpful thinking, um, and instead say, "What is it I was built to do? Born to do? What did I come here to do? What's my what's the right?" Set of work uh, that yeah. I maybe even uniquely can bring to the world. You know, to me, that's the essential path. That's what mm. it means ultimately to be an essentialist. It's not just to do fewer things better, it is that. But at a deeper level, it's to do the few things you are really supposed to do. And so life becomes figuring out what that is. Eliminating what it isn't and trying to design a life that makes it possible, e- doable, even easy to, to, to go down that path. Uh, so, so, so to me, that path is achievable. You know, that yeah. path is something that is not just a, a peripheral thought. I think it's the very work of life.
2: That brings two things to mind. I had a mentor who started working with me when we rebranded, you know, we started out as a podcast for bloggers. He came to work with me in 2013, fundamentally changed the entire direction of my life. And he said, I remember, I think a month into working with me, I'd been doing freelance work where I was, you know, managing social media for a pro surfer. I'd helped somebody market a book. And he said, do you want to be doing any of this in five years? And I said, no. He said, then stop doing all of it now. (laughs) And I was like, Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, And then, you know, we had Justine Musk, Elon uh, Musk's ex-wife here. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up uh, sort of the trade-off thing because she said what when I asked her, I said, what is it that we don't? She said, people don't see the amount of work that actually goes into these accomplishments. She's like, you know, it's one thing to believe that these people work hard. But she said these kinds of accomplishments often come literally at the cost of everything else in your life.
1: Exactly. (laughs) So next time you feel jealous of somebody, just say, do I want the full trade-off? Now that's not an excuse to not go, not fulfill the mission you have within you, but it's, it should be enough to, 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 to interrupt this hero worshiping, uh, this, uh, this, uh, berating of self when our life doesn't look like somebody else who's made completely different trade-offs in order to achieve what they've achieved. Uh, we, 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 you know, I want to. I, I remember when I was first, you know, writing Essentials, maybe it had just come out, and I could see so many of my you know, colleagues maybe writing a second book, or they, they, they would, you know, they would have a whole coaching business, or they would, but they're just doing all sorts of interesting things. And the pull within me at times to do those things was real. But then you go forward a few years and you just go, yes, but I have loved these trade-offs, I, I pick these trade-offs again. I pick that I've been able to be singular about this this subject that matters so much to me. I, I, I pick that it's kept me you know, honest about uh, spending time with my own family. Uh, one of my things I, I, I've done recently, and, and it's grown out of essentialist thinking, is that at five o'clock at night, so even in COVID times, Uh, At at exactly at five, I leave the office, my office at home, and uh, and I announce (laughs) loud to the whole family what time it is. So if it's four fifty nine, they know it. If it's five oh three, they know it. And it's this accountability moment. I I love these trade offs. I love that the that what has followed this set of trade offs is that. It is literally true that my children are best friends with each other, and and that I am too, and that my wife is as well. That we genuinely want to be together. That that only can happen through day in day out trade offs, and and so you've got to how do how would you say it? you've got to want what you really want.
5: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June.
6: Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
2: So I think um, this will actually make a perfect jump off point for getting into essentialism. So you have this moment uh, you know, where you get into law school, but what you say is that you don't feel a sense of mission or purpose. And I think there are so many people who don't feel that, you know, in moments just like that, but unlike you, they don't act on it. Why not?
1: I don't think that it's really a, a an feel. Tr- it doesn't feel possible to them. It it might be logically true that they could do something different, but emotionally, it doesn't feel true. And for me too, I mean, I have a lot of compassion because for me, I had to be in a different continent, different country. Talking to somebody new I'd never even talked to before, given this outside perspective in an outside place to suddenly feel emotionally possible. Oh, I could do it, and, and this after you know a lifetime of maybe trying to take a different path anyway. So I'm I'm very sympathetic to the challenge that's at hand here, and, and I think that that when people think of it, the, the they're pulled towards a sense of oh I want to do what's a sense you know purposeful for me but they the, the counterweight is you know the amygdala uh, and the fear reaction that's in our brain whenever we try to make a big change. So my, my what I would encourage people to do now uh, with a few years of hindsight have studied this and looked at how people change and don't change is to go so small, so simple, so easy you can't fail. So literally you say, okay, right. You're in this job. You don't really want to be in You're do in this place. You don't want to be whatever, right? So it's, it's quite dramatic things. Somebody could wake up to, uh, don't worry about all of this. Take one minute a day to research something you actually do want to do, you know, to, to, to study what a career in that would be like, or to look at, you know, how, how what an entrepreneur's business would be like. I mean, the tiniest thing. And in this way, I think you can almost trick the amygdala. You can get around the fear response. Uh, you, you, you can. It's like let it, let it be asleep over there, as you just try a tiny experiment in exploration towards something that matters to you, and and let that build very naturally, unforced over time. Uh, the thin end of the wedge, and mm. use that. To grow into, uh, oh, I understand a bit more now. It seems a little more possible than it did yesterday, and, and and I think that that incremental approach can be very powerful. Yeah,
2: well, it's funny because I think as a society we tend to glorify the sort of dramatic risk taking, um, and you know, people who take incremental approaches don't get that glory of the press. But I think if you actually go and deconstruct any of these stories, they actually tend to be very incremental in how they actually come together.
1: I think that's been true for me completely. Even, even where I share a story like quitting law school, and of course it does sound dramatic, and and in a sense it is. I I mean, I didn't go back to law school. I didn't go back to the. I'm actually sure I should have done, but I didn't even say, "Hey, I'm dropping out." I just, I just went, "Okay, that's over. I'm moving forward." So in a sense, it's a dramatic shift. But this had been building day after day after day. This was not just completely out of the blue. I, I had since I was very young, since I was, you know, at the same time as I was being an entrepreneur, I, I, I had images. I didn't have words for it, but images of teaching in the future. I wanted. To, I, I could imagine teaching, and, I, and certainly by the time I was a teenager, I was actively reading uh, literature that typically you wouldn't, you know, people wouldn't read maybe till thirties or forties or later. You know, so so I'm I'm reading the success literature, the wisdom literature. I was fascinated by that stuff. So it, I mean i I'd met with uh, and, and talked to people that had written these books, so it was definitely there. I just hadn't realized, look, you can just start this now, you can get on with this now. you don't have to wait for twenty years and then do what it is that you're feeling. you know it's similar to that lovely story of what you just described. Well stop doing it now it was that was the breakthrough moment, but it was actually still incremental before and even afterwards. Yeah, when I went back to England after uh, after quitting law, I spent that summer reading, writing, researching. I mean, I just began the quiet work. There was no applause. <laughs> there was not. There was no social media at that time. So there wasn't even that kind of instant thing where you could start microblogging. Uh, the, the, I mean, even the internet, as we think of it, basically wasn't around. So I just started reading, writing, willing. A new kind of life, and it's been this great adventure. Uh, I love as much today. Uh, I've I got up early this morning and was writing and researching. I'm working on a new book now, and I enjoyed that as much today as I did these uh, more than twenty years ago. Uh, w- w- you know, researching and writing then. It, this is discovering the thing that does feel so natural and really, actually, easy for you uh, compared to how it is for other people. This is one of the good tests that you're you're getting closer to what your unique and uh, highest contribution is.
2: Well, I think that makes a perfect segue into essentialism. But where I want to start actually is with the fact that you've taught in a university. And you know when I look back to Berkeley, and I've mentioned this before, I felt like the way that my potential choices for what to study were basically presented to me as a fast food menu. It was like, these are your options. Choose from the ones in front of you. But what I now, you know, with hindsight, I'm like, wow, the options in front of you blind you to the possibilities that surround you. You're somebody who writes about choice. Why is that? Like, And, and you know, specifically in the context of education, as somebody who has taught in one of the most elite universities in the world, how do we begin to unwind that narrative? What does the future of this look like?
1: Look, the the educational systems were designed, literally designed in in the Industrial Revolution. I mean, before that, there was no mass education. So once there was enough um, means to be able to provide an education for the masses and that there was just even the possibility, because machines increasingly took the role of, of basically child labor, yeah, so suddenly there is the emergence the possibility of education for a lot of people and uh, we applied the industrial age thinking to the way a school would work to, to so so it's not just it's not just universities it's the entire, uh, the entire formal education system is built on these assumptions that are largely invisible to us now but I mean, this is the separation of subjects the separation of subjects was far less um established prior to the uh, to, to mass education. When when you go back and, and and read you know about Newton uh and Principia Mathematica, this absolute phenomenon, uh two year uh, treaties that pushed our thinking forward in 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 the laws of, of motion and physics, incomprehensibly. Uh, he didn't do it in any way that remotely follows how a traditional education experience w- would be. Uh, you know, he, he went in solitude. That's the first huge difference. He was doing deep work. Uh, he was doing uh, essential focused work. He had questions he was trying to answer. That's the first thing. Uh the 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 next thing he's completely combining subjects. There's no separation of truth for him. Truth can be circumscribed for him into one great hall, and he's just trying to understand how that ecosystem of truth works together, how all of that motion works together. That is again completely different than the industrial age system where we separate it all up. Math is in this building, <laughs> you know. History is in that classroom. Music exists over here. I mean, that isn't how the world is that's just one way of trying to understand the world but it it was like a factory based system you go from this piece to you know of the of the machine of the uh, of the uh, automated process into this piece and we're trying to efficiently take lots of people through it we're going to have you sit in rows just like a factory we're going to have one person at the front telling you you know what to think uh, i mean none of this is actually <laughs> really even very close to how a natural learning about the world would take place. Uh, and and both the work that I, I did when I was teaching at Stanford, uh, where I was uh, co-designed a class on designing life essentially, in that literal work, what we were trying to do there. And then in my own efforts now, unexpected as they turn out to be, uh, my wife and I decided that we would homeschool our children, even though we'd never... Uh, even though we'd never been homeschooled in fact in my uh the podcast my first episode of the new podcast essentialism podcast is is talking with my wife anna about the birth of essentialism what went on in the background and and so we touch upon some of these unexpected journeys we've been on so you know tie all that together it's it's that what we want for our children what i wanted for my students at stanford what i want for people who read essentialism is To remove all of that uh, non-essential clutter that gets in the way of the real work—I described it earlier on in this conversation—the work of life. I, I, I—we we we suddenly realize: well, we want our children not to wait until their mid twenties or mid thirties to start asking the right questions. I mean, if you wait, I mean, what 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 a shame it is! to wait till you're in your mid thirties in a career with responsibilities, with a mortgage to suddenly say, well, what am I really here for? What what am I really, what's my unique contribution? What's my mission? What is it? What's it all about? What can I uniquely do in the world? That maybe no one else can do. I mean, what a shame to wait that long. Uh, so, so with our own children, we've encouraged these questions. And I remember uh, my, well, I'll give you a this is within the last month Uh, talking with my son who, um, who who wanted previous to this conversation, he's 14 years old previous to this conversation. If you asked him what he wanted to do with his life, he would have said, well, uh, either, either uh, an engineer or a handyman, Um, which is to say that he has observed that he loves to understand how things work and he's really good at it too. And so that we started researching a little together online and over the course of about, I don't know, an hour or so. We clarify together that what he wants to be is a biotech engineer specializing in medical devices. To, to me, the, the, the advantage what happened once we were reading it specifically about that, he sat back in this chair, he laid back, and his eyes closed, and he just, his whole body just relaxed. And and I said I said you I said, I said when I see that in you what I think is that you feel home. And he just without opening his eyes he said yes Dad, that's how it feels. And to me that was such a magical moment. Yeah, that these are in no way my strengths. I have no agenda for him to be this. I'm not trying to mold him into something that I want. I'm not trying to put him through a factory based system. I don't want him to be you know, an author like I've chosen to be. I want exactly the opposite. I want him to find his unique and essential mission. And, and that's what I want to encourage for, you know, when I was teaching at Stanford, it was, it was helping people to design a life around the things that they could uniquely contribute. And, 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 and to not pay any attention, no comparison, no competition with the person sitting next to them. Uh, we we want we want each person to find and to fulfill the measure of their creation uh, and so whether that's a biotech engineer uh, whether it's an author uh, you know if, of, of personal growth leadership and strategy principle you know that doesn't matter uh, it's it's about finding that voice and bringing it forth in the world
2: yeah. So one thing you said is to become an essentialist requires a heightened awareness of our ability to choose. We need to recognize it as an invincible power within us, existing separate and distinct from any other thing, person, or force. And I, I think that the reason that I'd highlighted that in particular is because of the current situation we're in. I get the sense that a lot of people right now actually feel incredibly powerless um, because of, of, you know the circumstances they're in due to a pandemic that is completely out of their control. So in the wake of something like this, where we're dealing with a situation that is out of our control, and it's not like we're never going to experience situations that are out of our control again in our lives, they happen consistently. Um, What do you say to them?
1: Uh, I I, I would, um, I would share a story with them. Um, So not long ago, uh, my Tammy and I moved into um, a really lovely community. Uh, white picket fences, um, you know, no street lamps, horse trails. Uh, my children got to spend these uh, long days outside with a happy dog, they're riding horses. I mean, it is planting a garden, apple trees, grapevines. Uh, we really just living in this little piece of heaven uh, on earth together. Uh, one of our daughters, Eve, seemed especially to thrive. Uh, she's a um, slim, brown-eyed, brown-haired girl, mischievous grin. Uh, she cannot stay cross for half a second. Uh, with, you know, even if she tries to, she just bursts into laughter. She, she's always climbing trees, running barefoot all over the place, wrestling with her brothers, catching lizards. This is her life, reading uh, reading books. Animated all the time, writing in a journal. Uh, animated, scintillating conversation, just punctuated with laughter all the time. This is this is Eve. Uh, then she turned fourteen, uh, hit a growth spurt, and uh, and you know felt tired a lot, uh, talked to us less, uh, took longer to do her chores. So pretty age appropriate behavior, um, or so we thought. Uh, On a routine visit with a physical therapist, um, he noticed that uh, Eve didn't respond properly to a basic reflex um, test. And so he took my wife, Anna, aside and said, look, you might want to see a neurologist about this. And of course, we didn't need to be told twice. So uh, from that point on, her symptoms worsened from uh, a daily basis. Within just a few weeks, uh, she could answer in only one-word sentences um, with a slurred, monotone voice. Uh, right-hand side of her body responding slower than the left. Uh, took you know two full minutes to write her own name, hours to eat a meal, and the light once so vibrant and bright in Eve dimmed, uh, and and then seemed to go out entirely. Um, Uh, when she was hospitalized with uh, a major seizure. So what made the situation worse is through all this time, the doctors uh, couldn't explain anything. Um, They could not offer us even the beginning of a diagnosis. Uh, Every day we're going to more respected neurologists, uh, look at us with furrowed brows. Uh, one instance, he literally shrugged his shoulders tests, tests, more tests, everything, all of them come back negative. Uh, they don't even have a clue. And so we're just watching our vivacious daughter in an almost constant state of freefall and, you know, no explanation at all. And then that this is the stuff that, you know, true stuff, suffering is, is made of. Uh, and in, in moments like this where everything's out of our control, We really have sort of two choices. Uh, You can take a hard, out-of-control situation and focus on what you can't do anything about, let it consume you, body and soul. You basically take a hard situation and make it much harder. Uh, Or you can focus on what you can do something about, uh, which is, might might be very reduced items. You know, at first we thought, well, we just need to attack this problem full force, all directions, twenty four seven. Go to every neurologist in the country, ask a million questions, kill ourselves in all nighters, googling for a cure, uh, pouring over medical journals. I mean, just all of this, just, just just near huge superhuman effort on the on the one side. But the problem, if you take that approach, we found you know, quickly that you your approach is unsustainable and and you produce disappointing results. And in the end, you just feel like giving up. And so mostly we we saw it differently. And um, we realized the best way to help her uh, was not by exerting more and more effort. Uh, Indeed, it was uh, quite the opposite because if your job is to keep the fires burning for an indefinite period of time, you can't throw all the fuel on the flames, so to speak, at the beginning uh, you, you need to take the, the long journey so so what what we did at least is we we there were just so many things we didn't do, and in times of uncertainty and, and when things are out of control, I think that that, that the things we didn't do uh, uh, could be informative uh, we didn't torture, torture ourselves with unanswerable questions uh, we didn't worry ourselves sick about whether this was terminal we didn't complain that the doctors didn't have the answers we didn't live in denial or tell ourselves "Oh, well, it's not so bad we we didn't try to force the timetable we didn't try to say why us become all uh, you know woe is us about it we didn't dissect every article people were sending us to some of these things are awful that they'd send it's quite ill-informed, well-intended, but not so. We didn't try to do it all alone. This is, to me, this is removing all of these things when you can't control a situation. is so important because you want to be able to sustain your effort and focus on the things you can. What we did instead were focus on the really simple things, essential things but easy things. Um, like uh, mm-hmm. we got around the piano and sang we went on walks. We read books together. We played games. We looked for the positive and pointed it out. We ate dinner together, told stories, toasted each other, (laughs) laughed all the time. We were grateful, and we did these things each day. And what we noticed is that there's almost a a magical force at play. Uh, We no longer felt overwhelmed, less exhausted. We didn't burn out. Uh, And and it's been two years now. and we've seen amazing results, uh, and and we still have the energy to keep going. So we've watched our daughter wither into a shell of her former self and return from it. Uh, Of course, there's been medical procedures involved, but uh, she continues to get better. It's still ongoing, but we have reason to believe she'll be completely healed. Uh, She smiles, laughs, jokes. She walks, runs, wrestles. She... Reads, writes, she's thriving again. Uh, indeed, she is not only made up for lost time, she's on target to graduate high school some two years early. So what, what, if I could summarize all of that, I would simply say this. If you focus on what... It, well, I'll say it this way. It, I do not think for one moment that we would have endured it, far less thrived through it, if we had done it the hard way. If we'd been consumed and tried to carry the burden of things we could not control. The situation was hard enough without us making it harder. And and what I learned from that experience is um, I just discovered a whole different way to do life, Uh, a way that eases life's inevitable burdens.
2: Um. Yeah. Wow. Um. Well, thank you. That was beautiful. And it actually makes a perfect segue slash return to something you brought up earlier, which is this, you know, nonlinear relationship between effort and reward. And something you say later in the book is that while the industrial era is long behind us, the more structures and systems continue to pervade most modern organizations. And, you know, I remember, I think part of the reason I highlighted that is that I felt that that was my entire experience of corporate America, where it was very clear that the appearance of effort mattered more than the actual results that you were generating, which is why it didn't last very long mm-hmm. at any job. And yet- here we are, it's 2020. I think the only reason we are now officially finally realizing that you don't need to be at work for eight hours a day and you can work from somewhere else is because we have to. Uh, how, do, how do we actually undo what, uh, you know, Aaron Dignan, who's a former guest here, he said that they have this sort of these operating systems that exist within organizations and most of them are outdated. We're effectively running modern day organizations in 2020 on whatever the Windows version was before Windows 95. <laughs>
1: Yes, I mean, I, I do agree. Uh, I think that we, as we went from the agrarian age to the industrial age, I mean, 89, 90% of the jobs and all the work that went with them disappeared and were replaced. Uh, Drucker talks about it being a 50x increase in productivity that took place in that transition. Uh, he said the big challenge of you know, our times, of this new age, as we go from the industrial age uh, to a knowledge age, is, that, is, to, is to, again, uh, remove all the old systems and create a new system that, again, increases productivity by 50x. Now, since he laid down that gauntlet, of a, a, I suppose, uh, we, we haven't achieved it. Uh, we are still in transition, and it, it will happen. I, I think the forces are at play that make them effectively inevitable but but right now we're still in the tra- we're still in the that transition period, um, and, and we still have all of the um, the old systems structures and structures and and burdens of a way of doing things where the asset was labor and machines. Well, now that's not what it is. It's not an efficiency system anymore. That was efficiency. It was just how quickly can you get a thing through this process? But we're not doing that anymore. That once you move to knowledge work, the value, the promise, the possibility is a person's uh, ability to create value. And, And so what to do is the primary question. What, what work is to be done? What's the right thing to be done? And, and I think essentialism can play an important role in helping to uh, lubricate that transition from industrial age to this higher value knowledge age because essentialism, although it is often and frequently put as a, as a productivity book, a productivity uh, idea, I, I think it's a complete misrepresentation um, productivity, at least traditional productivity, is about doing, you know, doing stuff, getting stuff done as efficiently as possible. That's industrial age essentialism. You know, might might be more like the first productivity book of the new age because what you're saying instead is is get the right things done. Well, the difference between doing things, getting things done, and getting the right things done uh, is is really different. But that's the difference between you know, thinking that you've, you're in a coal mine and suddenly waking up and realizing you're in a diamond mine. Well, the whole skill set is different. Your ability to discern what matters, what is disproportionately valuable, is like a huge part of the skill set. That might be the most important skill set of the 21st century. Your ability to find those diamonds, those things that matter, that's completely different an industrial system where the, the, the what is already spoken for. That's already been decided and your job is just to do the piece that you're given as efficiently as possible. So this new possibility, the new age, you know what an essentialist can do uh, if they set their lives up right is that they can create space to discern what is essential. The few things that really matter. They can uh, they, they can develop the skills to be able to negotiate out of the things that don't matter uh so and then they can build a new system that makes it easy and efficient to do the things that really are valuable that's essentialism that's the concept of what essentialism is and and, and i think it's it's um, you know it's a critical mindset in order to be able to make good on the promise uh, that Uh, you you know, that, that, that Drucker was talking about.
2: Oh, wow. okay. So, uh, you know, we've been dancing around a lot of this with a lot of theory, and I think I want to make sure that you know our listeners get some very tactical things here as well, just because the theory part is what I was curious about. Um, one of my favorite concepts is, you know, what you brought up about selection criteria. You say that making our criteria both selective and explicit affords us a systematic tool for discerning what is essential and filtering out the things that are not. And I remember reading that because one of the challenges that I was running into was I would get pitches from podcast guests, and I would sit around deliberating whether I wanted this person or not. Not. And then I remember your scale rule from the Stanford class of seven to 10. And if they weren't, you know, if they're below seven, they were an immediate no. And I literally did that, you know, and I'd put a column inside of my air table and said, okay, is this a hell yes or no? And if it was not a hell yes, I was like, okay, great. This person's not going to be a guest. Um, can you talk about how we might apply that to other parts of it's, our lives? It,
1: uh, fundamentally, it's the 90% rule. Um, so you, 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 instead of getting lost in the middle, evaluating endlessly you know all these good things and possible things you could be doing. You're using just a stricter, a stricter rule. Um, I, in my own life, um, I, I came up a couple of years ago with, with you know, three rules that I was following uh, to just immediately be able to say yes and no to the things that came along, uh, and, uh, and and that's what people can do. You you actually make it explicit. You write down. Rules for what i 'm saying yes to, rules for what I would say no to uh, and and the process of just coming up with those is an important part of of becoming an essentialist because you start to say you know so it 's a bit like the closet uh, metaphor where, where where if you go into your closet to tidy it out because it 's too much stuff in there, you can easily um, you can easily leave almost everything untouched by the end of the process you've tidied it but you didn't get rid of anything you didn't because your criteria was something like could i ever possibly wear this again in the future maybe and the, <laughs> the answer to that question is yes of course it's possible so the criteria is so broad nothing comes out of the closet so what would a more selective question be um have I worn it in the last six months? I mean, for some people, that's like a, a third of their closet is out. <laughs> seriously. Um, then, then you could say, okay, do I, do I look good in it?" Another 20 percent's gone. <laughs> um, you, you know, we could use Marie Kondo 's question we could say, "Does it spark joy?" That's more like a 90 percent style question, because the answer to almost everything will be no. And that's why it's such a useful question, and why it's proved to be so useful uh, for so many people. Uh, because because what you want to be left with is only the things that you love to wear, that that fit you now, uh, that you wear often. And and once your closet is like that, when you walk into it, it's like a breath of fresh air. You walk in, and you just you just you love it. Everything. everything oh, I just want to be here. I want to be able to. I can find what I want quickly. Everything I have on the shelf is is good. I have some space now for something new to come into my closet. Some new item that I could could get and, and add to, uh, you know, to the clothes here. Something new. Of course, this is just the, the metaphor. But for our own lives, as we start, I think for many many people, the criteria for their life is as broad as the one we started there with the closet. It's just like is it in my inbox? I mean, that's a sufficient criteria for them to be doing stuff. Is, it, uh, uh, is someone else doing this? <laughs> Have I ever thought in the past I should do it? Um, could, it could this thing do some good possibly? So these questions are so broad, they, the answer has to be yes. And that's literally why people, they just live in their inboxes. They become a slave to these, these, these uh, not just to their to-do list, although they can, that can happen, but to this massive mental to-do list in their head. I just had David Allen on the Essentialism podcast, and he talked about this. He said that the most recent research is that you can only hold two things in your brain at the same time, in your mind. The RAM of your mind. Two, beyond two, you have cognitive um, deterioration. I mean, when I first applied—not in this interview with, in conversation with him—but previously, when I read about his work, when I first got everything out of my head, you know, the closet of my mind, there were four hundred. This is literally true. Four hundred things that were just sitting there. And, and I'm trying to go through life with 400 things in my mind and all sort of vying for your attention. Once I got all of that out, just like the closet, get it all out. You know, now your closet's empty. Your mind's empty. It's all out, outside. It's lying on the bed. You know, all the stuff from your closet. And you go through each item. And you're saying, is this, is this essential? Is this... does?" Why do I think this ought to be done? What's the outcome that it serves me? You evaluating item after item. What would done look like? And so you go through a process one by one, so that you can rid yourself of as many of these tasks as possible. Uh, and, And and as you do that, you end up with a life that, oh my goodness, it feels doable. It's not so burdened, not so heavy, uh, because we're just doing the things that really, you know, f- are the, are the, this, 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 cor- you know, the right and correct path for me. Now, this all sounds so idealistic. I know that, but we've got to get clear about what the definite yeses are for us, because if you don't have a point of view, you can't advocate for yourself, you can't lead your your way on the team you're currently on, or your, your business down a path that is one that you want to be on. And so, yes, you can't just go from point A to point B. I know what is 90% yes for me, and now I'm going to say no to everything else immediately without consequence. No, you can't do that. But neither can you live a life full of just the 90% and above essential work If you don't know what it is, if you haven't done any selective um, evaluation. And so so as with the closet, as with the mind, so with all of the decisions in your life, you start to look at it not through a a dark lens of non-essentialism, which lies to us and makes us believe that everything is of equal importance. We take off that lens. Essentialism isn't putting on a lens. It's taking off the funny glasses so you can see clearly. And suddenly as you do that, you say, goodness, hardly any of this stuff matters to me. It might matter to my neighbor. It might matter to so-and-so. It might matter to somebody online. It might matter to somebody on Instagram, but it doesn't matter to me. It might have mattered to me a year ago but it doesn't matter anymore to me. And, and as we discover that, uh, we, we're suddenly liberated from all of these um, heavy layer upon layer of expectations that no longer serve us, and, and wow. we can, we're free to move forward.
2: Wow. So it's funny because I, I realized well, I could talk to you for another two hours based on how much more depth there is in this book. There's one other area that I want to ask you about. Um, you talked about both commitment traps and boundaries. And in the interest of time, I think the the one that I want to focus on is boundaries. You say that boundaries are like the walls of a sandcastle. The second we let one fall over, the rest of them come crashing down. And you know, it, it's funny because I think that you know, I remember writing an article about this after working with a dating coach. I said, you know, if I could go back and find one pattern between all of my relationships, um, it was a complete lack of boundaries. And the fact that I would spend money that I didn't have uh, to, you know, out of fear that the relationship would end, um, you know, do things I didn't want to do. And I, I saw that that had actually played out in virtually every other area of my life. Like I had no boundaries with my mother. I think the thing that I wonder when it comes to boundaries is, People often fear communicating their boundaries out of rocking the boat and sometimes they communicate the boundaries and the response ends up being negative and they're like shit I'm not doing that again.
1: Yes, uh I think that well, we have to begin any conversation about boundaries with an awareness that we live in a world of trade-offs. There's no path that you can choose X, where you're not also saying Y. It was saying no to A, B, and C, right? You, you, everything is a trade-off. So if you say I'm going to say yes to everything from this person, I'm going to have no boundaries, um, so that things will go really well with them okay, fine, you can make the decision with that logic in mind. But the reality is that you've made a trade-off right there. You have made trade-offs. And one of the trade-offs you've made in the moment of setting your relationship up that way is that you're going to be violated. Because at some point, there'll be something that you feel like saying no to that actually hurts you. At first, it maybe just pinches you a bit, but actually at some point violates something really quite meaningful to you or deep with you. Or maybe it's just a thousand cuts. It's just a, a bit at a time, the violation just dr- bit by bit. Eventually, you're going to be in a situation where you're in a violating relationship. And that's the inevitable trade-off you make when you first say, you know, oh, I'm, not, I'm going to do anything and no matter what, no boundary relationship. And so this is this is what i want to encourage people to to remember about boundaries uh is that you're not making a choice between well, do i keep somebody happy or do i cause a problem in this moment when i'm going to have a boundary you if you try to do boundaryless living you're still going to make somebody upset you're still going to be upset yourself so so that's not even you, you know this 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 perfect optimal path that doesn't really exist. So now you need to get to the more honest place of like the only possible viable long-term relationship will be one in which there are boundaries. Healthy boundaries, yes, some give and take, yes, some flexibility. But for sure, there will be boundaries. There will be things that work for you and don't work for you. Things that work for them and don't work for them. And if you can find enough overlap between those things, then you can maintain a relationship. If you can't, then there isn't a relationship that can be sustained. It will ultimately discombobulate. Uh, and so it will be in a, in a really damaging way. Uh, you know, let, me, let me give you a, a positive version of what I'm describing here. So um, I was just um, – actually, I just reached out to, to her again, but, but years ago I'd spoken to a woman named Cynthia and she said that um, – she told me a story um, of when she was 12 years old and her father and her had planned this whole uh, trip to San Francisco together. And they had been anticipating it, looking forward to it um, for you know, months. They would talk about, oh, it was going to be so fun. Every part of it was designed – her father was going to be at a conference through the day at the hotel. Then she was going to meet him, uh, you know, early evening. And they were going to spend the entire rest of the time together. They were going to go to uh, to Little China and eat eat, uh, eat eat food there. They were going to go to the movies, you know, catch a flick. They uh, they were going to go swim in the pool at the hotel. Uh, his dad was famous for going in even after hours and, and going to swim and they're going to go back to the hotel, watch maybe watch another movie, get ice cream sundays. I mean, the whole thing had been designed and imagined, and they were looking forward to it. Everything's going according to plan until at the end of this conference that her father's been attending. Uh, she she uh, meets him back of the room, and just as they're you know about to leave, um, one of his, her, his old friends and colleagues suddenly turns up. And says, oh, I'm so glad that you're working with the company now. It's so exciting because uh, my, my wife and I, we want to, we, 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 we set aside our evening. We want to take you right now. We're going to go to the uh, to the wharf for a splendid, you know, uh, seafood dinner overlooking the wharf. It's going to be amazing. And, of course, Cynthia, bring Cynthia with us. It'll be marvelous. We'll do it. Let's go. And for just a heartbeat, Cynthia's like, well, what's going to happen, right? Like, I'm just, everything's gone. I don't even like seafood. Uh, I'm going to sit at this table, going to be bored because they're going to do adult conversation. And, and, and just in this moment of, you know, anticipatory loss, uh, she says her father says, oh, that would be so great to, you know, to be with you and to do that. But, but not tonight. I've got the whole evening planned with my daughter back to back. And he just grabs her by the hand and they just whisks her out and they do that whole evening exactly as planned. It's poignant that that Cynthia is talking about her father. Her father is uh, is, is, is Stephen Covey, who wrote Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Uh, It's an evidence of a moment where he was really living what he was teaching. He was an essentialist uh, by a different name. And she was telling me this story just after he had passed away. So, literally, this moment had lasted now more than a lifetime. And in that story, Boundaries are at play. It's a particular kind of boundary, but you can see that if he'd lived in a boundaryless way, if he'd just been open to every single possibility in that moment, he might easily have gone down that path. Uh, Instead, he put what was essential first, the priority in that moment was clear, he stayed with it, he maintained that boundary, and he was able to live his life according to it. You know, having boundaries, especially if we develop them clearly so that we know our boundaries really are protecting only the most essential things uh, can be enormously valuable uh, in living a life that really matters.
2: Wow. Um, what a beautiful place to wrap up our conversation. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Oh, it's, it's one thing. It's to become less and less of who you really aren't and more and more of who you really are. It is a, a deep, for me personally, spiritual and sacred idea that each of us um, is truly unique, truly made for purpose, designed to be unmistakable, and it is, is a great part of the journey of our life to, to discover that, to just even have the thought that that might be what it's about. And then maybe it takes another journey to, dis, to, to, to say, oh, I've got to get rid of all the things that it isn't. I've got to one by one eliminate that. And I'm with the courage that what I'm going to be left with is going to be special and meaningful that there is a set of things inside of me that, that that I'm drawn to that will allow me to play you know a meaningful part in the great narrative of life uh, the great human story
2: wow um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights and your wisdom with our listeners. This has been uh, phenomenal. I mean, I, I thought I would learn a lot from you from having read the book, but uh, this exceeded all of my expectations. Where can people find out more about you, your work, uh, the book, and everything else you are the, up to? The,
1: the, the one thing I would say, and it would be appropriate for me to have one place it, as the essentialist, all that, but uh, just essentialism.com. Uh, for right now, the, there's, there's a couple of things people can do there that would be, I think, immediately relevant. There's a, a one-minute Wednesday uh, that we've just started as a as a tool, a very short once a week uh, newsletter that gives you something you can do in just about a minute two to be more essentialist. So really achievable. Um, there's the new podcast, uh, and they, people can can subscribe there as well. Uh, but but then just in the future, we intend to have an online essentialism. and beyond that, a community. And so it's a place that uh, that, that there's a a whole intent behind that single place and single location. So uh, that's what I would say.
2: Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming?
0: because rust new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from rust
1: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ,